This is Anna Troxel from Lovelorn and Mugger, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with another brand new episode. And I am not here alone. I've got a special guest co-host with me today, Jason Zymet of Unoriginal Vinyl. Jason, say hello. That's me. It's Jason Zymet from Unoriginal Vinyl out of Denver, Colorado, and Switzerland. Jason, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you here. You know, you are the perfect co-host for this because you run Unoriginal Vinyl and you do vinyl releases for Tooth & Nail Records. And our interview subject on today's show is Toby Morell of Emory. And strap in because this is a great conversation. We cover it all. We cover the history of the band. We cover their latest record, rub some dirt on it, everything. It's all coming up. And you, I mean, you know Emory. You've put out releases for them on vinyl. Yeah, I've worked with Toby. I've worked with Matt Carter. I've done a lot of things with the labeled podcast, which Matt Carter of the Emory fame runs and narrates and yeah we did the last question live vinyl packaging for emery as well as the rub some dirt on it vinyl packaging for them as well and love emery love that band's history trajectory their fierce independence and specifically toby morell is an unstoppable badass of a person that's awesome so you do work with labeled the podcast as well i've been on uh, m- multiple episodes and and do a little bit of consulting with some of the narrative they're great uh, so somewhat of a historian like matt carter and certainly have a lot of interesting hot juicy goss on emory the band that he's going to reveal to you on this episode it's going to be fantastic Yes, yes. It's a great conversation, and that's coming up shortly, so strap in. But first, listen, I need to ask for your support. Support the new scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. You can also follow me on Twitch at The New Scene. My stream schedule is pretty erratic because I've always got a lot going on, but follow me and turn on notifications. You'll see when I go live, and you can come join in on the fun. I've also got a gaming YouTube channel and gaming Instagram under the name New Scene Gaming. So go check it out if you're interested. Also support Iodine Recordings. Now, now Iodine is representing at Fest this year. If you're going to Fest, check it out. We've got Audio Karate, One Line Drawing, Drowning Man, The Darling Fire, The Iron Roses, Joe McMahon of Smoker Fire, Her Head's on Fire, Hey Thanks, and Best X all playing the fest this year. It's going to be unbelievable. Check it out. So Jason, before we jump into ourselves more, let's talk about some music recommendations. What are you listening to lately, Jason? Lay it on me. Well, I'm really loving that 1975 single, I'm in love with you. It's a music video that harkens vaudeville and silent film era. I'm a big silent film, especially comedy buff as far as film history is concerned and the way that the 1975 singer harkens a lot of the body language back to Buster Keaton and Charlie Chase, especially not so much Chaplin, but 
a lot of that pantomime style of acting in the I'm in love with you video. It also has Phoebe Bridgers in the music video really did my heart some good. I'm a big fan of that eighties cheese pop, the stuff like small pools. If you're familiar with small pools as well, some of these bands that are really nailing the nail on the head with this eighties pop Renaissance kind of vibe. It's just, it's hitting me right in that, uh, that music diabetes coma I'm looking to get every time I hear some of that sugary music. And then maybe to contrast that, I just got back from Furnace Fest. So there were some bands and styles of music that I was particularly relieved to see again, maybe for the first time in a long time, things like Roadside Monument and some of the heavier bands. Life in Your Way is a big one for me to be able to see live and see uh, their vinyl finally come out is a project that I worked on for quite some time to see all that come to fruition was pretty special to me. So maybe uh, put a little bit of contrast from that sugar pop 1975 stuff with the heavy hardcore. I'm also really into clown core recently, if you're familiar at all. What is clown core? So it seems to be this YouTube only sensation of two virtuosos. They appear to be jazz musicians who want to play some obscure acid jazz metal infused style of music. And it's fantastic. They're all wearing clown masks and they're typically driving around in a giant conversion van playing all this music very live. Fantastic. (laughs) That sounds awesome. I'm going to check that out. So you were at Furnace Fest as well. I was there too. Did we see each other? Did we meet? No. Okay. I was running around selling three new first time on vinyl releases, but it was a scavenger hunt. You had to find me to get them. Oh, you know what? I think I heard about you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause someone was looking for something and I remember Casey saying he's walking around, you have to find him. And I was like, I wonder what that's all about. It was you. That's me. You got it. <laughs> yeah. We had fun, especially on Saturday. We released Life in Your Way's Waking Giants, which Life in Your Way had not had a vinyl release apart from an independent release in 2011. So it was really fun to get to release their record and introduce them from the stage with Chad Johnson, the Furnace Fest creator. I had a great time and I told people in the audience, if you would like to buy this record for the next 45 minutes, you're going to have to meet me in the pit. And then I stage dove right when they started. And that was in fact how you bought the record was meeting me right in the center (laughs) of the pit. (laughs) That's awesome. So I mean, does it make things more difficult when someone has to find you? Do you, do you ever get a table and, and have the whole setup there at Furnace Fest like a lot of the other labels do? Nope. We're into the future, my friend. You're on like a whole different wavelength then. That's true. Yeah, I'd say that would be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the idea would be that we give you a QR code. You can scan it on your phone, fill in your information using your own cell phone device and have it mailed back to you when the records are all finished. So it's not just a function of supply chain issues on vinyl timing, but then it's also a question of convenience for you. You don't have to wait in line. Our interaction together lasts all of about 35 seconds when I hand you that records OB strip with a QR code to purchase. And then it mails back to your house when the records are all done. And you didn't have to worry about whether or not that record got all dinged up in your backpack during the rest of Furnace Fest. You know what? That's a great idea, actually. One, because it's futuristic and quick, And I, you know, I live in New York City. If I see a line, I'm not waiting. I'm just not. I'm always on go, go, go. And I was very cognizant of, you know, I was working in the iodine recordings booth a little bit. 
and uh, we would hold records for people. Sure. If uh, they bought a tote, you know, buy a tote, we'll hold the records for you so they don't get messed up. And I was very, very careful about handling the records and placing them down and picking them up because I know that collectors are very uh, particular about the quality and condition of the records. That's absolutely correct. And we didn't want them to have to go put them in a hot baking car and melt the records or anything like that. We just thought about the end user's experience being optimal by not waiting in line, number one, and number two, not having to carry around heavy objects with them, not just at the festival, but on on the plane home. You know, let that be part of another brick and mortar sort of traditional model, but we're we're trying to think about also not shipping all of the records that didn't sell home. That's another cost that goes into the process. So, hey, but let's talk about Emory for a second because Emory's amazing and their story is fantastic to me. Just basically coming from this corner of the United States where music is inside of a little bubble that oftentimes did not make it all the way over to the West Coast. They're a Carolina band. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So the idea that four or five of them decided, we just want to make it so badly, we're willing to gas up our van and drive not only across the country, but it's almost the farthest drive you could make in the country from Carolina to Seattle and just wait outside the door of your favorite record label. And this is happening in like 2001 or 2002. That's a pretty ambitious idea to follow. Yeah, that uh, that was a big move. That was a big move. It was just incomprehensible to me be- to just pick up and move across the country like that. And listen, you're going to hear about that and more right now. Make sure you check back in with me and Jason in segment three. I'm going to talk to Jason more about unoriginal vinyl. We're going to tell you how we're both doing. But right now, we are going to speak to Toby Morell of Emory. Enjoy. So we're here now with Toby Morell. Toby, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's wonderful to have you here, Toby. You know, uh, Emery has done so much over the years, and we have a brand new album out, Rub Some Dirt On It, which just came out in June, and we're going to cover all of that. But Toby, first, let me ask you, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Just been hanging out at the park with my kids. Oh, nice. How many kids do you have? Three. Oh, three. So you are you must be really busy all the time. Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you living? I'm up in uh, Champaign, Illinois. Oh, home of uh, Hum. Yeah, yep. And uh, REO Speedwagon. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, so much good music comes out of there. There must be something in the water. Yeah, and now uh, two Emory guys live here, so that's pretty good. Yes, you're you're only adding to the uh, historical musical output of the area now. Well, that's right. Where are you at, Keith? I am in Brooklyn, New York. Oh, wow. I've been there before. I shot a video there before. Really? What, for the band? Yeah. Yeah, we uh What was the video? It was for uh the song Study in Politics. It was at the uh I always forget the damn name of the it's a it's a like a world famous old school boxing gym. Uh it starts with a G. I can I, I I I'll probably remember it an hour after we're done, but uh yeah, we shot a video there many, I mean over a decade ago, but it was cool. Oh, nice. So uh you grew up in South Carolina? Yep. Yep. Uh Greer, South Carolina. Yeah, tell us about that. How was it? Well, it was, uh, you know, I, I'm older. I'm 46 now, so it was uh, growing up in the 80s. Um, I loved it. I mean, I didn't know any different. So it was, you know, it was small. Greer, South Carolina was very small back then. It's a lot bigger now, but uh, like every other place. But it was fun. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, it's it's a whole different world when I think about my childhood to now. Uh, and that's good and bad. You know, sometimes I think life was a lot simpler than we were a lot less connected. And, uh, so that, I think it was kind of fun. And, uh, I think that's why everybody loves stuff like stranger things or, you know, like the, uh, a a callback to that time where we weren't so digitized. I think, uh, that it was probably better for us, but now I don't think there's any going back. No, absolutely not. And, you know, Uh, Toby, I think people our age, I'm 40 years old now. I think one good thing about being our age is we saw both sides of it. You know, back when there was just telephones that you had to press numbers on to dial, and we've seen everything that's happened up till now, where it's just the oversaturation of social media and cell phones and everything else. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, like I said, there's no going back, and and it is awesome to be this connected and have all this, but yeah, we. You, you and I got to experience a, a world pre-internet, and that'll never happen again. I mean, that, never. <laughs> I mean that, that's over. Yeah, and you mentioned Stranger Things. One thing I've realized going back and watching things now, and it's like, I miss those mysterious suburban settings. And I don't know if you had the same experience, but we had woods, and we had like a mysterious person that we deemed crazy. I don't even know if she was or not, who would walk through the woods and like all these mysteries of childhood. Did you have that kind of thing too? Oh yeah, 100%. Yeah. We, uh, I remember like behind my house now where my dad lives, the house I grew up in, uh, there's tons of houses around, you know, they developed everything and, and, but back then when I was a kid, it was all woods. And so we'd go back there and I can remember like, you know, people would shoot guns like I can remember one time we were walking through the woods and I heard a bullet just over my head. Like I heard it in the distance, the gunfire, and then a bullet just shoot over us. And I think it might've just been a hunter. I don't think somebody was like shooting at us, but I just remember thinking, "Whoa, this is so crazy. And I, and, and I'll, you know, I was with a bunch of kids and I was a kid too. And we all just laid on the ground scared to death that we might get hit. And we just went home, you know, like now that would might make the news. Everybody'd be so scared, but we just went home. You know what I mean? Like now everything's a lot. I feel like we're way more connected. We are probably safe in some way. We're probably more safe, but more scared. No, a hundred percent. And I just had this conversation with a friend recently. There was, you know, the playing with weapons and dangerous things was, was a lot more prevalent back in the day, you know, like toy guns, or I remember we were just throwing rocks at each other. And so I got clocked in the face and was bleeding. I got into a fake 
knife fight with a friend who came at me with a pocket knife and he cut open my thumb. Like the crazy stuff that you do is just, uh, it seems unbelievable now. Yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't do half the things you did as a kid now. I mean, I, I wouldn't let my kids do them. <laughs> so I, mean, <laughs> I would hope not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just, I just remembered that boxing gym. It's called Gleason's boxing gym. That's what it's called. It's in Brooklyn. So, Oh, I think I've heard of that. Yeah. 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 Another thing we did, this was good. There was this bridge, this little bridge, and over the side of the bridge, there was this kind of circular concrete little pillar that you could stand on. So we had our friend climb over the bridge and act like he was falling off and like hanging onto the side. And we acted like we were trying to pull him up as cars drove by. Oh, that was yeah. fun. <laughs> <laughs> you could do all kinds of things. I mean, I mean, we, I toilet papered houses. I did all, you know, I mean, we threw golf. We, we would go to the uh, local driving range, steal a bunch of golf balls and then ride down the road, throwing them at signs, throwing them at houses, doing all kinds of stuff. You could never get away with that. Now, everybody has a camera. I mean, there's a camera everywhere, which that's what I'm saying. It's probably better. We shouldn't have probably been throwing golf balls while driving down the road uh, as teenagers, you know, uh, doing things we shouldn't have done. But at the same time, there's a little bit of fun that's lost and a little bit of adventure that's gone now. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Everybody's got those ring doorbell things where you can see everything that's going on. And that was the thing. Like with me as a kid, I didn't start getting into real trouble until later. So we were just kids in the suburbs looking for things to do. So we did crazy stuff like that too. Bought paintball guns and went around shooting everything or egging people, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Used to could have a lot of fun. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe we should get back into that. What do you think? Uh, it, it, it's gone, man. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> You'd pr- uh, it's probably be a jail sentence now at, yep. our, at our age. Yeah, it really would be. So talk about your history with music. Is it something that you've always been interested in? Um, I realized pretty early on, and maybe my family members, uh, like my parents and uh, grandparents and aunts and uncles and stuff, realized I, I was a pretty good singer. So I would sing at church a lot. You know, they would ask me to sing. Uh, you know, I was always in choir. And then pretty early on, like a choir in elementary school and middle school and high school, I would, you know, I would get solos. And, uh, you know, I, I just recognize that people really like my voice. So I thought it must be good enough to, you know, sing in front of people. And so, yeah, I think my intro was that. And then pretty early on, my dad found, uh, I think he got it for free. Somebody was getting rid of their piano and it, you know, a couple of the keys were out of tune and stuff like that. But I just sat, he, and it, he didn't even bring it in the house. It sat in the garage, but I would, I would sit out there in the hot summer, you know, uh, on summer vacation from school and I kind of taught myself a little bit about the piano and just learned some chords on my own. You know, once again, there was no internet, but I would, you know, I think I talked my dad into buying me a book, uh, to, you know, just to learn some old songs. And, uh, and so, yeah, there was a, there was something that fascinated me about not only, uh, performance, but writing your own music pretty early on. Yeah. And that's gotta be thrilling. Like as a kid, soloing in the choir at church and not only that but people seem to be receptive to it and into what you're doing yeah yeah for sure i mean it's good and bad like i thought man i must be a really good singer and then once i started getting into you know that was a small pool in greer south carolina in the 80s once i started getting the bigger pools i was like oh wait there's a lot of good singers and they're better than me so you know sometimes it's good and bad like you in the sense of uh your ego and and understanding where you're at in your place in the world, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I experienced that ego death time and time again, but I've, I'm learning to embrace it because yes, it's painful, but then you, you just always come out better from the other side. Oh, 100%. 
So how did you transition from church choir to to more band related singing? Well, in high school, nobody, there was like a one local band, but I mean, everybody, all they were playing was like Pearl Jam covers or, you know, it was only covers or if they had a real song, no one listened to it or cared and it wasn't good. And uh, so I got, I went to college and ended up with, you know, meeting some musician friends and we started writing music together. So college was my, my entry into that really, like I had written some songs, you know, by myself on the piano or uh, I'd started teaching myself guitar a little bit, but, um, once I met them, I started this, I started a band and we mostly did covers, but we wrote like two or three originals and then, you know, had a buddy that could record, had like a four track recorder or two track recorder. I can't even remember. And, uh, we recorded a few songs and then, uh, ended up changing colleges, meeting the guys in Emory. And then we all kind of started doing stuff and that's kind of where it really took off. Yeah, and I, I did some research on you, and, and you mentioned that you got into the bands and all of that and music and the scene a little bit later. I think you were like 23, 24 years old. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I didn't know that there was music outside of the radio until probably, yeah, mid-20s, basically. So uh, <laughs> I just I just didn't know it existed. Like, I grew up with, the yeah, the craziest thing I'd ever heard was like uh, Deftones or, and, and for a while there, it was like Creed. Or so, you know, like that, that was, uh, you know, maybe Nirvana and stuff, you know, that, but I mean, that all still was mainstream. I didn't know there was anything that wasn't radio until about that time. Right. When I was in high school, and it sounds like you too, those were fringe bands, like Deftones were not huge. Corn hadn't broken yet. You know, if, if you listen to like Marilyn Manson and, and all that kind of stuff, that was like kind of the, the underground, the mainstream underground provocative stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nobody, I, I mean, it just wasn't an outlet for it. And, and once again, when I was listening to music, there wasn't really the internet, you know, the, the, the people that introduced me to that music that was underground, I guess, if you want to call it that, um, they were like mailing into labels and then the label would mail them snail mail, you know, them music, you know, tapes or CDs eventually. Um, that was the only way to find music that wasn't on the radio because the radio was the only thing I ever knew of how to find music. Yeah, exactly. I, I just discovered the scene on accident through friends and there was a lot of interesting bands going on. And uh, it sounds like you did too. Like I heard you mention uh, you discovered Beloved and Hope's Fall down in North Carolina, right? Yeah. Yeah. We went to college and went to university in Rock Hill, South Carolina. So we go up to Charlotte and uh, see some bands that were playing, you know, with once we found out there was music that wasn't on the radio, underground music or whatever, uh, we would go see shows with tour. There would be a touring band that we knew. Uh, there was a record label out of Charlotte called deep Elm records. They're still around, but they were pretty cool back in the day and, um, had a lot of really cool emo bands, what I call real emo. And, um, and then locals would play with them. And so we found some bands like that. Yeah. Like beloved played or hopes fall. Um, would play some shows with them. And then we were like, Oh wait, there is, there are bands that are even local that are doing this. Cause we didn't even know those existed. Yeah. And discovering this and discovering stuff outside the radio, I guess that started to influence what you and the band were doing as well. Yes. Yeah. It was, it was almost like, Oh wait, now everything that I've ever felt is possible. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's what I thought. Cause I, I thought, Oh, everything on the radio, I thought, Oh, that, I guess that's all you can do. Uh, Cause I just didn't know any different. And then once I heard music outside of that circle, 
um, I realized, oh, wait a minute, everything that I've ever wanted to try is possible. I, I don't know if it necessarily is successful. You know, we go see bands like I remember seeing Appleseed cast up in Charlotte and there was like seven people there. And and I thought the band was the greatest band in the world. You know, I thought, I mean, their music just was so phenomenal. So it didn't mean success, but it it did mean you could go on the road and you might not make any money, but you could, you know, you could play your music in front of seven people. And, you know, they're from Lawrence, Kansas. And, you know, they could try travel, you know, a thousand, 1500 miles and play for seven people in Charlotte. That's pretty cool. Yeah. My similar to you, you know, my only experience was I had only been to one show. It was the first family values tour and it was in a giant stadium type place. I didn't know about underground shows. I didn't know that uh, just people my age playing shows, it seemed like an impossibility. But then when I discovered the scene and I saw that my friends were all in these incredible bands and they were putting on these shows and there was tons of people there, it really invigorated me and made me want to get involved with this thing as well. And it sounds like you as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. We, I remember seeing like, uh, we, I remember we watched stained stained was on tour I forget the other band that was with them. It was another kind of big band, but I remember seeing Stained and uh, who else did we see? Uh, we went and saw like uh, um, 311 and Jimmy's Chicken Shack and um, Incubus. And uh, so we, we were listening to those bands. And then once we started realizing that other bands were touring through, but like at small, really tiny clubs, that's when we really started heading that way. That was, that was those intimate, Smaller shows were just more fun than, you know, going to some arena and watching, uh, yeah, 311 or something. Exactly, because you could be face-to-face with the band. And me, the I, the I when I started going to shows, it was insane bands like Converge and Dillinger Escape Plan, yeah. and I would almost get killed at the shows. It was a real thrill. Yeah, it was great. So talk about the beginning of Emory. You see these bands were together in college. Uh, talk about how it came together and your first shows. Well, we, um, let's see. We were in different bands. I was in a band. So I was in a band with Devin and Matt from that, that are in Emory. Now it was called Joe 747. And, but we just asked them to be in our, our band, um, because they were in another band called Satchel and uh, it was just college band. And we were playing, we would play some shows and, you know, local bar here and there, but no one, you know, cared about our band at all. They just didn't like that music. You know, you know, this is, you know, mid nineties and late nineties and no one cared. So once we were getting ready to graduate college, we were like, wait a minute, we would love to just try this before we go into our careers or anything. Could we make a band together and, uh, really be serious about it? And so we ended up forming Emory and we were like, if we stay in South Carolina, our life is just going to get in the way. You know, our girlfriends are, we'll go, well, let's get, you know, we got our degrees. And so let's use that a little bit and we'll work jobs and then do the band as well. And we knew that wouldn't make it that we knew that would fail. So we, uh, we decided let's move and go somewhere where all we have is the band. And so we, we looked around at several different cities and decided upon Seattle. We just thought it would be really cool. We'd never been there. I'd only heard about the music scene there and, you know, just thought it'd be cool. So we drove, left South Carolina and drove 3000 miles just to be there and we were like hey we'll we'll get a six-month lease or a year lease and if in a year six months into a year if this band isn't working out we'll go back and get jobs you know no big deal but uh it ended up working out yeah i mean you're still doing it all these years later do you ever think about that that you made that decision and 
here you are still now doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty amazing that, yeah, I just got off tour. <laughs> like I got off tour like about a week ago and it's kind of crazy that it, it's still good. I mean, shows are great. Tour is great. We're going on tour in another few weeks. So it is pretty crazy that that decision has basically made my whole career. Yeah, absolutely. And I've read about this move the band did to Seattle. And I think that's pretty amazing because I've been in the situation where I don't know, I'm pushing for everyone to focus on the band more, but it's not happening. Or I've been around other bands where it's like, hey, let's relocate or get a house or just focus on this. And it never happens because people are involved with different things or they have different obligations. So I think it's pretty amazing that you were all on the same page and could make such a big move together like this. Yeah, it was it was kind of wild. Um, well, so our original bass player bailed on us before we even left. And so he just, he said, you know, he was in love. And so he just totally bailed on us. And, but another friend ended up just going with us and became our bass player. He was actually a really good blues guitar player, but we were like, Hey, we need a bass player. Would you play bass? And so he did. And, uh, but yeah, we were all kind of under the same idea of let's live as cheap as possible. Let's practice as much as possible. See if we can get a record, see if we can play some shows together in, um, Seattle and see what happens. And yeah, you're right. It all worked out. And you had never been to Seattle before. No, never. I never farthest I'd ever gone was Florida <laughs> from South Carolina. <laughs> what happens if you get there and you hate it or like, you know, like, I guess that didn't happen, but it's pretty, it's pretty wild. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's the thing. I, I think people are always scared to risk or something like that. I think that's the biggest issue with people. Like people always live in the what ifs, but mm -hmm. it, is it really that bad if you move somewhere and hate it? At least you know you hate it. You know what I mean? Like that That's the thing that I, like, I'd rather know, man, I hate Seattle and I hate being in a band than not to have ever done it and going, you know what? Maybe I could have. So I, th I think people should take more risks. I don't know why they don't like, it's not that crazy of a, I mean, it, it, especially in this day and age, I mean, money means nothing. The world is falling apart. Everything is terrible. Why wouldn't you take some risks and, and, you know, and see what happens? At least you would find out, man, that sucks. Like I, I we, we kind of understood that somehow that like, I would love to go to Seattle, waste all this money and go, this sucks. At least I would know. I'd like, man, yeah. That when I was, you know, when I was in my mid twenties, I moved and, and that really was awful. And as opposed to always wishing that maybe I could have done something. Yeah. That, that doesn't make as much sense to me. No, you're absolutely right. There's tons of things I've tried in my life that haven't worked out at all, but I'm so happy that I took the risk and gave it a shot. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So what do you do when you get to Seattle? Do you just start looking for an apartment first? I mean, how how does that work logistically? Yeah, we had like a trailer that we were given, um, and so you could sleep in it. So we pulled it behind uh, Matt, our guitar player's Tahoe, and we would sleep in it. We built all these bunks in it. So we had probably seven eight bunks in it and we pulled up to a national uh, not a national park but i guess it was a local state park it was really beautiful and we slept there in that trailer for a couple of weeks while we looked around where we wanted to live and uh, we didn't end up in seattle proper we ended up in renton which is a suburb of seattle uh, and we just got a, an apartment and we got a year lease and um so we stayed there for a year and we all got like part-time jobs just enough to pay the bills and, you know, eat some food. I mean, but very poor. <laughs> and uh, then we tried to go to shows and meet people. And uh, eventually we did. 
And we found out where, you know, small shows were happening, met some bands. And then those friendships ended up helping us get on shows. And, um, and then from there, once, once you meet people in the local scene and, you know, cause not tooting our own home, but we were cool people. We, you know, people liked us. Um, they liked our music, but also they just liked us as people. And, um, and I think, uh, on a side note, a lot of, a lot of new bands don't understand that. Like if you can just be cool around other bands, that's more important than it, maybe even your music. Cause people want, if people want you around like in the green room or at a show, that means more oftentimes than how cool your breakdown is or something. But, uh, we, I mean, your breakdowns matter to the masses, but to get on shows and stuff like that, you just gotta kind of be chill, kind of be a, be a, be a likable, easy person to be around. And, and fortunately we were that way. And so we got into the scene and then from there, it just so happened that one of the guys in the scene ended up working for tooth and nail records. And, uh, he was like, man, you, you know, we, we recorded our first album on our own. We, we saved up enough money. What we ended up doing was we said, let's give, let's all work these part-time jobs and 75% of our paycheck will go to paying our bills, but also savings so that we could record our own record. And, uh, there was a lot of bands like that band I, I talked about earlier, Apple Seed cast, uh, beautiful mistake, uh, had gone to Eudora, Kansas and recorded with Ed Rose. And we thought, well, man, we really want to go there. So we saved up enough money as a band and recorded that first record. And then we shopped it around. And since our buddy, now that we had played shows with his, his band was called flying or falling. His name is John Dunn. Uh, he ended up working at Tooth and Nail, and he was just in the mailroom. But he was like, "Hey, listen, this is a local band uh, called Emory. Here's their new record, and they're shopping it around." And that's how we ended up on Tooth and Nail. Oh, excellent! Yeah, that must been it. Must have been an exciting time. I mean, you move out to Seattle, you don't know anybody. You're young. You're with your friends. You're putting all of your focus into this music. You're living in the park for a few weeks and just discovering the scene and figuring things out. I mean, it had to have been a great time. Yeah, it really was. It was a lot of fun. I, I, there's oftentimes I miss it, like how little responsibility, like I could totally focus on only the things I wanted to do as opposed to the things that I have to do. I think about that a lot. I'm like, what did I do when I was young? Because now every day is so full. I plan things out by the hour. I'm like, what What was I doing when I was young? Like, what? I can't even imagine. Yeah, I know. I, you used to have so much time and you wasted it. <laughs> <laughs> How do you balance it now? You've got three kids, you've got a wife, you've got uh, the band, you've got you've, you've just got more and more and more stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I guess now it works out that it was harder before because my kids were younger. Now that my kids are just a hair older, we're able to work some stuff out with my wife's work schedule and my schedule, but it's still difficult. I don't think I do a good job at it, but we don't. We we would never probably take a tour like we tour a decent amount for who we are and where we're at in our career, but we would never do like a seven week tour. That would just I I just wouldn't even want to be away from my family that much. None of us would want to to in the band. So the way we tour now is like we'll go out for seven to ten days and then be home, you know, for a month or so, and that just works for us. A lot of a lot of bands it wouldn't work and and. It probably, you would make more money on a seven, like if Emory decided to do a seven week tour, we would make more money and it would be, you know, beneficial in a lot of ways, but it's just not who we are or what we want to do. Like, I, I mean, it was very fun being on this last tour, but we toured from a Tuesday to a Sunday. 
you know, and then I was home on Monday. So I just, I mean, I don't, I don't really want to do much more than that right now. Like, especially with like after COVID, COVID opened up the door to like digital performances. Uh, and, and ours did really well. And I think a lot more bands are going to take that opportunity to do that because you can watch your favorite band perform live from the comfort of your own living room. And it, and the show sounds better and looks better than your local sound guy, you know, and local club. I mean, it just does. Cause you're, I mean, we spent a lot of money on those. And so like, we want them to be good. We want them to sound great. We want them to be, uh, you know, all our camera folks to be in all the right spots and to make everything you get to see Emory in a way that you never had before. So that is even a new thing that I think is going to catch on even more because I mean, like this last tour we went on just, we were just talking about today on our podcast, just to get to the first show was 20% of the entire cost of the tour just to get to the first show 20%. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, what's that in gas, gas flights. Um, I mean, the flights were insane from Seattle to fly to Atlanta were, you know, uh, round trip for all the Seattle guys was over a thousand dollars each. And that used to be like, you know, 300 bucks or something. Now it's a thousand, you know, uh, it was just, it, it was insane. And then, um, the, the way, and then gas, I mean, our, our van is a diesel van. So that, I mean, that's oftentimes close to $6 or if not over $6 a gallon. And it's just, you know, I mean, that just costs a lot when you're like, oh man, I got to drive you know, 400 miles today or so, you know, 300 miles, something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. How does it work? Do you all meet in Atlanta and then someone has the van down there? Or how does it work logistically? Yeah. We had the van and we drove it down from Champaign to Atlanta and the, everybody else is on the West coast and flew down. Yeah. And no, I think that's the way you have to do it at, at our age. I wouldn't want to be out on the road for seven weeks in a row, especially if I had a family. I mean, you you can, if you have a family. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard. So you sign with Tooth and Nail. They pick up the record that you've recorded, yes? Yep. So I imagine that you saw a pretty big jump in interest in the band after that was released. Yeah, back then, I mean, another thing too now, I mean, that's what uh, is another interesting thing is that when we signed to Tooth and Nail, the internet was still, I mean, it, it was up and running and good and, you know, influential, but labels, music labels, still were like the most important thing for a band. Um, so just getting that name recognition with, with tooth and nail meant a lot. Um, now I think you're going to see more and more bands like just doing their own thing. And I mean, that's even happening, you know, bands are doing their own thing. Like we, so we signed to tooth and nail back then though, because we were like, well, we need a label. We got some offers for some other labels, but it just made sense to sign a tooth and nail. They gave us the best deal. Um, it was, we were in Seattle, they were in Seattle. And so it ended up working out. And yeah, so once our first album came out, it really hit, like it was, it was kind of crazy because we saved up enough money to, to pay for our own album and then tooth and nail bought that from us. But then that first record really hit and blew up and then the rest is history kind of. Yeah. Around what year, what year was that when the, the first record came out? Like 2003. Yeah. So the, you know, the internet is around, but it's not like we're not into the, we're not into the age yet where you could just Google an album and then instantly download it with one click. Right. Yeah. Not at all. And that kind of really changed the landscape of things, I guess, around 2008 and nine. Yep. Yep. 100%. By the time our third record came out, not only could you download the record and, you know, even not even pay for it, but you could uh, also 
critique it and tell the world, <laughs> you know, that didn't, you know, and everybody could say good or bad stuff about your record by the time we were on our third record. So we went from, you know, internet not mattering as much to it only mattered. Yeah. Now I've heard you talk about the third record a, a lot. That's uh, I'm only a man, the LP. Yes. Yep. Now tell me if I have the story right. First album, well, we have really good sales. Second album, we have even better sales. So the third album, everybody's geared up and, and you're like, this is going to be the biggest thing ever. We're going to hold out for some amazing deals. And that didn't quite happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it still sold well, but it it wasn't bigger than our first two. So we thought that, you know, we thought first record killed, second record even bigger, third record is going to be even bigger. And then it just was kind of average. And so that, yeah, it was, it was a disappointment in the sense of we thought, we might be going to the next level as a band. And yeah, that didn't end up happening. How does that fare with like the label? Do they need it to sell even more? Or are they happy with the way it's performing? Like, how does that work? I mean, they still made money on it for sure. Like yeah. a lot, lot more money than we ever did. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, every, I think even them, they thought, you know, everybody thought this was the next stage of what Emory would be. And so it I mean, I, I think everybody probably was disappointed in sales just because we thought, well, what is going to happen? But at the same time, like I said, this was our record came out when everybody started realizing, wait a minute, you can, uh, you know, critique a, a record online. You can say this and that. And nobody had understood what that was yet. I mean, I, I still don't think we understand social media today, uh, what, what it is, what it means to us, how it affects us, what it does mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And so I think it, we were right in this crazy whirlwind of, oh, wait, people can go online now and say whatever they want about your record. And, and it wasn't even, you know, I'm not even saying it was that much people. Most people love the record. Like we re, we redid it and it uh, that was our first special and people loved it and it killed. But it, at the time you're going, wait a minute, this record, we thought it was going to be, you know, take us to the next level. And it was just average. And how did you deal with? with any criticism that you got. I mean, because I've never experienced that on such a large level where the internet is new and this outpouring of criticism, if people want to deliver it to you, they can. Like, I'm sure you saw a lot of that. Like, how do you feel about that? How do you deal with that at the time? Yeah, I didn't handle it well. Uh, I, I mean, people, I mean, once again, majority of people thought the record was great, but the, yeah. um, so what ended up happening was tooth and nail, picked a song that wasn't the pick the least heaviest song on the record. Um, it's called the party song and which is still one of our biggest like songs, which is crazy. But at the time, a lot of, you know, fans thought we were selling out or trying to get on the radio or so. I don't even, I don't, I mean, they just, you know, people think things immediately. And, um, and so we want, we wanted the last song on the record to come out, but tooth and L disagreed and so we were like okay well you know you're the label we we trust you guys i wish we wouldn't have trusted them on that but uh they i mean we we have a great relationship with tooth and nail but that was a bad decision on their part they uh so they put that out and and you know people run with something like oh you know emory's you know they, they people will say a band's a sellout as fast as they possibly can like people will say that immediately as soon as they hear you know first 10 seconds of a song on their new album. And so I didn't handle it well. And yeah, I, I, I was frustrated that people could not understand that we'd worked so hard on this record, that we'd put so much time in the lyrics and melodies and music and, and guitar parts and finding this producer that we liked. 
um, and that people could just go, yeah, this is, you know, stupid. And so um, that that was not good. Yeah. And uh, people, especially people in the scene, I, I don't know if it happens as much now, but certainly back then will make snap judgment calls that aren't even true. Like in my own personal experience, I would make a decision about a band that I realized now wasn't even true and would just write them off for years based on something that I completely made up. And now I go back and look at that and I'm like, I was completely wrong. Like, what the hell was I doing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's easy to do. You know what I mean? I, I understand it, especially when we're talking about 2008, where yeah. you, do, you, you, you know, you got on a message board and you're like, I'm just going to talk. You know, I understand it now, but at the time, you know, it, it didn't feel good. Yeah. Well, when, when people are young, they don't have uh, the knowledge and the experience and everything else. Like, uh, I don't know if a band I really like changed their sound up or tried something different. Some, I guess sometimes I would go with it and sometimes I didn't. But I think as an artist, you need to do that. And plus, you guys are young. Uh, you're figuring out the industry. You're figuring out yourselves as bands. You know, you're changing things up a bit. I think that's what you have to do as an artist. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. We just never could have stayed the same. There are bands that wrote very similar records over and over and over. And we just could never have done that. It just, I, I, I'm, I'm very proud of the record, all the records we wrote. It was who we were at the time. And, and so I never looked back disappointed, honestly. Um, at the time I was hurt that people could be so harsh about something, but I still stand by our record and our music. I always think it's great. I'm, uh, I've said it a million times. I'm, I'm Emery's biggest fan. Like if I don't love our music the most, why would you? So I, I want to be the biggest fan so that other people go, man, I can be a fan too. Because if, if I'm just putting music out just to put it out as opposed to loving it, then I don't think anybody should like it, you know? Right. And I don't think you and the band would be doing this for decades if you didn't stand right. behind what you're producing, you know? Yeah, totally. So I'm only a man comes out. Not everybody loves it. Like, how does that change you? Do, does, does it change your approach at all? I mean, does it make you tougher and or just change up how you do things? Um... I don't know. We, we, I think the next record that came out is one of our best. So I, I would say that maybe on some level that we were influenced, like, you know, work hard, you know, I think up until that point, our first two records killed. And then our second record was average. We're like, Oh, wait a minute. Every record doesn't kill. You know, I think it, going back to that ego thing. So for me, I think it ended up making us work harder, which is actually really great. Like, being able to realize, wait a minute, we have to keep continue to work and push ourselves. That actually was helpful. No, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I think the, the energy that you put into the thing that gets reflected and that people can pick up on that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, you have a new album out, rub some dirt on it. And every, to everyone listening, this just came out June 24th via tooth and nail. So if you haven't heard it yet, you really need to. It's an excellent LP. Toby, I love it. And uh, this is the first new album since 2018, yes? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we uh, we, yeah, we haven't put out, I mean, COVID stopped the whole world, but um, it, it, it's nice to have a new album. And, and we recorded it ourselves. And um, our, we have a Emery Land and the Knuckle Breakers is kind of like a support crew that helps us, you know, supports us financially and you know, even emotionally and, and maybe even critically, but, uh, they've been really helpful. It's just fans of the band. And so we did it ourselves and uh, we put it, we gave it to just our, the Emory Landers, uh, late last year. And then 
everybody liked the record so much. We took, we took that criticism, like, man, this is a great Emory record from our fans. They were like, Whoa, this is really good. Like we are really enjoying this. And then, uh, because of that, we were like, well, who knows? Uh, we're still in contact with tooth and nail and tooth and nail wanted to, uh, help us with, uh, we did a licensing deal, which basically just got us some advertising, um, for the record. And so we put it out again, uh, as a licensing deal with tooth and nail and it's been going great. That's excellent. You said uh, you said you recorded it yourself. So what is the process like? Do you do you just you record everything yourself and then you just put it out directly to your uh, to your knuckle breaker fans? Yeah. Yeah. Matt and Josh and Chris and our band are all phenomenal at production, music production. They've been working forever at it. And so recording it with them just makes a lot of sense because we know what we want. and We know what we want to do. And so it, we don't necessarily need to go to a producer. A producer, maybe in the future, could be a cool idea, just an outside voice. But we often know what and how we want something to sound. So it works really good now just to keep everything in-house. And how does that work? Does it is it like a Patreon thing where only the supporters of the band get the record? Like, how, how does that work? Yeah, it, it was like that. So basically, Emeryland gets everything first. And then if we, if in Emeryland, they're loving it and thinking it's amazing and awesome, you know, what it, we like, we do EP covers. We do, uh, you know, we'll do an EP with covers, I should say. Um, and we'll do, you know, little side project songs or individual songs and we give them all to the Emerylanders. But if something comes out that people really like, then we'll put it out to the whole world. That's good. It's kind of like a testing ground. You can yeah. see how people react to things and decide if you want to take it to the next level. Yeah, 100%. It's been great, actually. It is pretty phenomenal how amazing those those group of people are and like helped us survive COVID. I mean, because we couldn't tour, we couldn't do it. You know, I mean, we couldn't do much of anything. And so those folks helped us figure out our direction with the band uh, helped, you know, us be a springboard for, oh, these songs are good. These, you know, putting stuff out. I mean, it's been phenomenal for us. Yeah. And it must feel amazing. Number one, to have a great new record out. And number two, to be able to go out and perform gigs again, because all of us thought it was never going to happen again. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. How did the most recent tour go? It was great. Yeah. It was really good. I think it's funny because, uh, we're in a weird time right now where like, once again, inflation is huge and, you know, people have to decide where and how they can spend their money. Um, uh, but there was a lot of people that came out and supported and really made the tour really fun. I love that. That's awesome. So you have a podcast as well. Yep. Yep. We have a podcast. It's called it's all over. Yes. Now th- I was uh, researching this and I was like, wait, I thought it was bad Christian, but it switched over from bad Christian to it's all over. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We wanted to take a break from Bad Christian. Bad Christian has had some ups and downs and uh, we wanted to just kind of move on to kind of doing a podcast that's just fun, more basically more comedy, cutting up, having a good time and uh, move away from Bad Christian. Just for a little, Bad Christian is more like on a hiatus. We'll probably start it back up sometime in the future. But uh, right now, this has been going great. So what are some of the ups and downs? I mean, it, it was focused on... Uh religious discussion and all that type of thing i imagine that can stir up things from time to time yeah yeah we well we had one of the original uh members that started the podcast with us um ended up having kind of a mental breakdown and it was really tough to navigate that and on both sides we didn't do it that well and eventually had to part ways and so that's um that we didn't really stop like after he left 
we kept going because uh, once again we wanted to, the listeners. We didn't. Uh, this was co- after he left. COVID happened like three months later, and or if not two months later. Yeah, I mean, very COVID was happening, but it really got crazy. Lockdowns and stuff about two and a half months later, and um, and so we wanted to keep going and do the podcast, but because everybody's locked in their houses, and we're like, well, we're not going to just stop this and give them nothing. And these people have been with us for years. And so we did that, but it kind of, at this point, we were like, you know what? We need time to really step away from this and take a break from all that has happened with the podcast. And so it's really nice to move on to do something a little different with it's all over, um, just to have fun and cut up and have a really good time. Yeah. And from what I heard, that's what it is. Just friends having fun in conversation. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's been great. How do you like podcasting? How did you decide, how did you get into it? Well, we started as bloggers, but we realized we were really bad at writing. So podcasting makes sense. We could talk. <laughs> Talking's a lot easier. Yeah. When did it start? When did you, when, like, what year did you first start it? Um, we started Bad Christian probably, I think it was around 2014, I think. I think it was around, yeah, around that time. And um, we were, and that's what's so funny about the internet. I mean, even podcasting wasn't near as a, as big or as important or, and way less podcasters back then. And now, you know, less than 10 years later, everybody has a podcast. So, it, you know, it was just kind of the right time, like, um, to start one. And in that niche of people, you know, deconstructing from Christianity or something, it just really kind of hit at that time. Was there any particular show or anything that inspired you to start one or, um, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I used to listen to like, you know, WTF of Mark Marin. Uh early on Rogan uh, you know, was was already a player. I mean, now he's way more massive. Um I used to listen to some some drama podcasts, um, like storyline podcasts. I listened to you know, there I was I was definitely early on on podcasts before a lot of people. Like I would talk to people, I was like, Oh, did you hear this podcast? And they wouldn't even know what a podcast was. And I was like, Oh, I guess it's just me. I don't know how I, I slipped into this world, but I just liked it. Cause I, I always enjoyed like talk radio. I just like hearing people's thoughts and ideas, regardless of it, even if I agree with them. Um, I always just thought that was interesting. And so, uh, I was just kind of an early bird to that. Yeah. I'm with you on that. You know, in my darkest, darkest days, I always liked to listen to talk radio, even if it was bad, even if it was something I didn't care about, because it, you know, if I'm like sitting there by myself and in bad shape, it's like I have friends with me having a conversation. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. That's that's probably the best. When people say that they love our podcast, that's what I enjoy the most. Hearing them say, "Man, it's just like I, I'm hanging out with my buddies." That's so fun. And uh, I too ha- used to have a partner who I did the show with. And he left because he had to focus more with his family. So I know how that can be, you know, like someone leaves, the whole dynamic changes. You almost have to re- you almost have to start over in a way. Yeah, you do. But I mean, some of that's good, too. You know, if, if you really care about it, you keep going and figuring it out. But it, it is tough when they leave. You have your own record label as well, right? We used to, but it ended up not making any money and costing us a lot. So we stopped. <laughs> <laughs> it was bad christian the label right yeah yeah we had we had, had some bands and we tried to go the route of like almost like legacy bands that bands that we knew that already had some followers and try to just support them and give them good deals um so that you know it it worked for them but it just doesn't make any money like it was just really hard and we lost money and we couldn't we couldn't afford it anymore how long did you do it for yeah, a few years you know two two three years four years maybe 
Yeah, it's almost like gambling. You just have to keep putting things out and keep doing it and keep it afloat and just hope that I guess there's going to be a payoff someday. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Do you find that podcasting can be expensive or are your costs pretty low? I, I find that the more time that goes on, the more expensive it gets and the more work there is, but I, I love it. So I'm it's just something I'm willing to keep doing. And it's not incredibly expensive. It's not like uh, being in a band or uh, recording a record even. It's, it's, you know, it's like, it's not that much. Yeah, no, I mean, d- there's some gear, you know, involved or whatever and whatever platform you want to use like we were using zencaster or if you use zoom or something you know there might be a monthly charge or something like that but otherwise it's about as cheap as it can get i mean uh, we're trying to get into maybe a little bit more video you know and adding some of those components um so that might cost a little bit but overall podcasting is is about as cheap as you can get exactly i think that's why there is so many of them because it is easier to start up now don't get me wrong it's hard to do it and be good right? Because I think a lot of people think, oh, you just go on and you talk about whatever and then it's going to be good. But that's not exactly how it works. But startup wise, yes, it's easy. You just, I mean, well, it's good to have a good mic, but you don't even need a good mic necessarily. Yeah. I mean, anybody can do it. I mean, you could do it with your iPhone if you wanted to. Yeah. I've heard of people doing that and well, it doesn't sound so great. Yeah. We have some friends that do it in their, it's called minivan mamas and they do it in their minivan. Because they they're, they have kids and it's the quietest place they can be, so they just sit in their car and record, and it sounds it actually sounds pretty good, and they do a pretty good job. So it's funny you can you can really podcast and just have a conversation anywhere. At one point, I read uh, it was during I think during the band or during a hiatus or something. You became the worship leader of a church. Yeah, yeah, I did that for a little while. I did that for a couple of years, uh, but eventually, I just decided I didn't want to do that anymore. What does that entail? Like, what do you do? Just lead worship. <laughs> I mean, you just, you know, it, it, it it's pretty straightforward. Just you know, go show up on Sundays and uh, lead the band for the most part. That's got to be pretty cool. Yeah, I liked it while I did it for sure. It was it, it was a fun job. And where are you at now with uh with your faith now compared to maybe when you were younger? Like things that I believe throughout my life, uh, whether it be I used to be heavily into certain political beliefs or. Uh, I was into conspiracy theories for a minute and I would just kind of like jam it awkwardly into the conversation and then it would be weird or I don't know where I'm at now. I just kind of believe what I believe. And if other people are into that, that's cool. And if they're not, that's cool too. And uh, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just kind of focused on what I'm doing and what I'm creating. Where are you at with everything? I'd say about the same. I mean, I, I, I there's nothing, you know, there's nothing else that I, I just don't feel the need to, to, you know, share my beliefs or force anybody to believe the way I used to believe or the way I do believe now. Um, I think it's just a, overall to me, it's just, uh, how would I say it? I guess overall to me, it's, I still believe in God. Um, but I don't need, I don't have that desire anymore to try and convert people or change them. I just, I'm where I'm at with me and that that's good enough. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Plus, I think the way things are structured in this country and just there's a lot of divisiveness. People are pitted against each other because their beliefs don't exactly line up. So I try to circumvent that by getting along with everyone. Well, as long as they're not like a neo-Nazi or some extremist, you know, the type of person I wouldn't even want to deal with. But I think fundamentally, if we're on the same page, if we want the best for people, if we want the best for ourselves, then we can get along. Yeah, I totally agree. So let's talk about what we've got coming up. Now, 
We have the new album out. Rub some dirt on it. You said you have another tour coming up? Uh, yeah, it's just another leg of this tour. Basically, we split up our tour into legs. The first tour tour leg we just got off of, it was just us and Aaron Gillespie and um, Idle Threat. But this tour, this next leg, we added, we're adding Norma Jean. Oh, nice. Yeah, so it'll be a good, it'll be a good one for sure. Uh, so we've got the next leg of the tour, right? And we're going to have, I guess we're going to have some new music at some point, right? I mean, the album just came out, but the band is going to continue. We're going to keep producing, yes? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We'll be working on new music soon. Excellent. What do you do in your downtime when you're not podcasting and uh, running record labels and uh, creating in the band? Um, just dad being a dad. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's basically what I do. Cause, uh, I mean, like I said, my wife for a long time, my wife didn't work or only had, you know, small part-time jobs, but now she has a full-time job. So when I'm at home, I'm kind of like, uh, you know, ushering them to school and, you know, getting them ready and trying to do some, you know, just, uh, stay at home dad stuff, I guess. That's basically what my life is. And in between that is podcasting and trying to write new music and do stuff like that. Have your kids heard or seen the band? What do they think of it? Uh, they think it's kind of cool, but I don't know if they totally care. They, they, they you know, <laughs> they just think it's all right. Toby, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show. You know, you and the band have created so much excellent music over the years that I love, that many people love. And uh, keep it up. This, uh, this has been great. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Keith. And there you have it, Toby Morell. Wow, that was a great conversation. Like you were talking about uh, in the beginning of the episode, Jason, that's a big move, you know, just picking a place to live. You know, we like Nirvana. We like these other bands. Let's go to Seattle and check it out. And the fact that they were able to meet people there and build up the band to what it is now is just is just pretty incredible. And kind of, you know, the story Toby was telling about how they thought they had this big deal on the horizon and they were holding out and it it just never came. And you know, expectations versus reality. He was he was really forthcoming, and I just thought it was a great conversation. Yeah, you did a great job facilitating that. Not only that, but I also love Emery's create first and then ask questions later model. Their ambition and drive seems to be completely coming from well intentions that the art has to exist, and then they'll figure out a way for commerce to either pay for it or make it available to their fan base. And they're at the point now, because I think not just of, of Emery, but a lot of their podcast success with both Bad Christian and the labeled podcast and all the things that they've constantly got going where they're just out there creating and the audience has now found them and relies and trusts in their narrative voice or their musicality enough to pursue it. They're going to chase down Emery as fans for life. That's a pretty unique niche that they've found. Absolutely. Yeah, I can relate to that. You know, over the past five years or so, I've I've found that I just need to be creating whatever it is, if it's a band or if it's some little video I'm putting together, or if it's this podcast now, I just need to be constantly creating and putting stuff out there. And it sounds like Toby and Emery are the same way. Absolutely. I find that highly admirable. It's great.
So you worked on their latest record too. You did the vinyl, yes, for Rub Some Dirt on it? Yeah, I think what happened with that one was the album was created. The mock-ups or idea of what they wanted for the packaging had been started. And then as oftentimes is the case, we get a call as essentially a graphic design service provider, also somewhat authorities on manufacturing and production capabilities where we can turn wild ideas into practical, physical realities for folks who maybe just have the great idea and that's where it stops. So yeah, that's kind of how Rub Some Dirt On It came about. And then, you know, again, from the model of create first, ask questions later, only after they had signed us to do the packaging for them and after they had the album fully recorded and then a lot of investments had been made by the fan community, did they end up re-signing to a record label. So that's interesting. Totally the opposite model from what you would expect. Yeah. So it sounds like you're the guy I need, Jason, because I always have a lot of great ideas, but I don't have Photoshop or anything to actually piece it together. Yeah. So Unoriginal Vinyl started in 2017, about after as a vinyl collector for over 20 years, I had started to see a very tapering down of quality in terms of what was becoming just boilerplate generic serving up of ultimately very important legacy albums where maybe they weren't large enough for a major label such as Universal or Warner to understand their significance to the fan community. But in fact, the fan community were clamoring for a reissue so bad that they were beginning to accept anything they got. Independent or regardless of the quality of the finished product, they were just happy to have that record finally on vinyl because it was either out of print or maybe it had never been made in the 90s or 2000s on vinyl. And so seeing this open window where a lot of record labels and artists didn't have a guy for that just made me immediately want to jump in and start creating packaging for, at first, rather obscure artists from Sweden or from Louisville, Colorado, here in Colorado where I'm based or or things like that, but then very quickly starting to take a business background that I have and a full-time career in business, working for a major food and beverage company here in the United States, taking some of those principles and understanding that a lot of what keeps good packaging or good artwork from existing in the vinyl world is simply that these labels don't have a designated person for that, if that makes sense. They don't have somebody who excels at packaging or somebody who will do the research or even be willing to reach out to the artists for the artist's input on the ultimate edition of, of their album that came out in 1997. You name the artist and there's probably... Plenty of examples where there have been very generic, corporatized, unthoughtful reissues on vinyl. You can probably name five examples of that right now, just off the top of your head. And and we wanted to serve as the antithesis to that, the curated museum quality production team that would essentially operate like a museum or a cultivation society of our scene to preserve memories. I was doing that through documentary films, through vinyl records, through books, uh, a lot of different ways that we've tried to contribute to making something that existed a while ago relevant again today. We're not a nostalgia label. We want things to feel tactily 
real and experiences to be translated and communicated to those that we love in a modern and relevant way today. And that seems to be something that artists love and the labels love. The labels just love somebody who can logistically solve for those problems for them. The graphic design problems, the licensing problems, the paperwork, the artist relationships from legacy artists that aren't even on the label anymore. They don't have a guy for that. And so that's kind of where we found our unique triangulation in the scene, if that makes sense. Interesting. So you're like the middleman. Definitely the middleman. I, I like to think of it more like this, Keith, if I'm being honest with you. If there is an X and a Y axis, and the X axis represents full artist interest and high integrity for artists, the higher you go on the X axis, you get higher in terms of ultimately serving what the artist wants and all of their intentions. And then the Y axis might be going a different direction towards labels expressed concerns or interests that have more to do with basic fundamental commerce. How much do things cost? What's the economic reality of pressing 2000 records versus 500 records? What do those things mean? How easy or hard are the licenses to obtain? Those things all exist on the Y axis. Well, unoriginal vinyl is on the Z axis, if you're familiar. We're not even considering where both of those interests end up. We are going a completely different offshoot direction. And the end user for us is the fan, the fan who holds that thing in their hands and has the best experience possible with that artifact. That makes it feel relevant, new, fresh, and also important to their whole life's story. Not just nostalgia, but anything else. I love that. And I love that you say not just nostalgia or the past, because I don't like to be hung up on the past either. My mission statement is acknowledge the past, live in the present. Yep, exactly right. There you go. That Now that's interesting, Jason. You mentioned reaching out to the artist and getting their input on this thing. So that makes me think like, have there been releases where the artist isn't even contacted and then they just kind of throw something together and then that's what comes out? That happens daily in the music industry. All the time. Wow. That happens constantly because oftentimes what happens is a major label will own both the master recording rights and the publishing of an artist. They'll, or, they'll own both. And then if somebody wants to use that artist's music on a television show, they will, meaning the master use holder or the label, will pay royalties to the songwriter but they themselves own the recorded music. And so they don't have to pay anything for those. So they'll solicit NBC or CBS or say to a game show, would you like to use this Death Cab for Cutie song from 2003? And the game show might say, yeah, that sounds fantastic. That label then pockets the money that they sold to the TV show for the master recordings, but then they just pay artist royalties to the artist. The artist might not even have any stake in whether or not it's a game show they would like to be a part of or support. It just happens. It's just part of the process in the music industry. So oftentimes, similarly, vinyl reissues happen where the artist is not reached out to. There's no questions given to the artist of whether or not they would like to tell their version of the story. And so me, again, being on the Z-axis, get to say, hey, I'm way out here in art design fan world as a graphic designer and a fan of your band, I'd love to tell your story better through this physical media package. That can be a book, it can be a record, it can be a documentary film. We've done all of those things, uh, producers of. 
So has there ever been an instance where you've reached out to a band and they're like, ah, whatever, I don't know, do whatever you want? Oftentimes, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's everything, man. It's it's just people, you know? It's just how people yeah. are. You'll get people who don't want to talk about something that happened three days ago, let alone in 1997. That's what I was going to say. Like, I imagine if it's a band from a long time ago, they're like, oh, I, I haven't thought about that in a while. Like, do whatever you want. Or they might have just nothing to say. They might have no insight. They might not have no critical, thoughtful addition to the narrative about why it's relevant today. But then Lars from NPR might have something really vibrant and really critical and amazing to say. So I'll just use a lot of the networks and connections that I have everywhere in this scene as a neutral party. You know what I mean? I'm not a label. So people don't have this beef or hang up with unoriginal vinyl, the label, because no such thing exists. It's just the guy who's doing cool art for bands. So if you look at any of our social media about all the records that we've worked on, they're essentially all just collaborations, sometimes exclusively with artists, sometimes with record labels. Sometimes they are just uh, odd job contract things or producing documentary films. We did a, a documentary film about the history of ska music with a director out of Bend, Oregon called Taylor called Pick It Up, Ska in the 90s. And it was a lot of fun. We had a great time going out and filming and just talking to bands. They sometimes have nothing to say. The bands might yeah. not have any insight. So we'll get the people who have the best thing to say about that music scene, about that venue, about that band, somebody to say something interesting. Have you ever worked on a release where the band didn't really care about it, but then they saw the great job you did with the new release and it just renewed their interest in the whole thing? That happens, I would say, semi-frequently. Yes. I would say maybe a sponge would be a good example of that out of Detroit, where Sponge really, there was a license opportunity to do Wax Ecstatic, which was a record that followed up their big hit record, Rotting Pinata. Let's call it 1996. This happened. Never was put on vinyl. And reaching out to the band, you know, they said, we don't really have a lot to say, but I was friends with the A&R man at Capitol back in the days when Sponge was signed to a major label in the 90s. And he had a boatload to say. So he wrote almost too much, maybe 20,000 words more than can fit in a vinyl record packaging, but his contribution to the liner notes and writing up an essay plus a retrospective on every single song that made the final cut for the record got the band extremely hyped, got the band extremely desirous to play some more shows, to have something to sell at the merch tables, to get excited about the celebration of their legacy now, which is fun. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, Jason, it's almost like we're almost doing the same thing, but in different formats. Like, I like to get to the core of the band, tell the story of the band, tell the story of the person in the band I'm talking to, and deliver that conversation to the people. You're almost doing the same thing, but for the band, and then putting that into the art and the packaging for this release that's going to come out. Yeah, and selfishly, I'm doing it for myself as a vinyl collector and a fan of these bands. You know, there have been plenty of opportunities and projects that we've been approached on that we could just be a graphic design company and take the job and the paycheck and run. But this is literally how we spend all of our free time apart from our families. We have both Bruno in Switzerland and I are, are essentially the, the two founders of Unoriginal Vinyl. We've got full-time careers and full-time families and responsibilities. So if we're going to spend time on any projects, it's going to be something that we would be proud to own as fans of those bands or those records. So to your point, it's more of just saying the end user for us is different than the end user for an artist or for a record label. 
The end user for us is us as fans wanting to own that thing and have it be the most rad story ever. Me jumping off the stage at Life in Your Way at Furnace Fest this year to sell the record for the very first time creates an experience and a memory for not just me, but everybody who met me in the pit and then saw me acting like a wild Tasmanian devil for the whole entire set, singing every word and screaming every word to the band set. Every person is going to remember how they got that record. They're going to get their OB. They're going to have it match the jacket at Furnace Fest. And they're going to have a memory like those dudes are wild animals. Truly. They didn't want to follow the conventional merch table equals bringing stuff down to Birmingham. They were in it with us as fans because they're experiencing this music and this art form of vinyl records as fans first. That's kind of the experience we want to have. And we're going to go out there and just manifest it. I like that. It's a pretty unique what you're doing. It's not a label exactly. And it's not just a, and it's not just a graphic design company. Exactly. It's a pretty unique thing you're doing. It's, I think what I would hope people would get labels, artists, or fans would be that if you saw a robot logo of an unoriginal vinyl release, quote unquote, in your vinyl record collection, and you saw that logo on the back, it would mean to you that this was handled with care and consideration. And it brought it into a state of relevance instead of it just existing in a state of like, yeah, this old record from 1991 is out again. And this time unoriginal vinyl did it. And then next time it might be craft recordings who does it. It's really meant to say this is handled for the fan experience to be optimal. So how deep do you go when working with a, a new artist and a new release? Do you, you talk to the band? Do you talk to management? Do you talk to people who know the band? Like how deep does it go? Absolutely. Every single one of those is true. Yes. Ultimately, when I'm having conversations, I go around the country and I talk to store owners at, at a Target or a Walmart, complete strangers to me. I do that about five times, six times a week, you know? I'll get in a car and train somebody on how to talk to a customer essentially about our, our beverage line at their store. And for me, that organic moment of just finding somebody's comfort zone, matching their, their pace and tone and what their concerns or interests are as we are doing right now, Keith, I'll give you an example, finding the common ground between what you're doing, preserving these bands stories narratively through this podcast, you and I have found that common ground essentially. So it's my job to find that within the first 15 minutes of every conversation. It's an art form. It's a talent that I've sort of acquired over 20 years of doing it. You know what I mean? So if it's meeting the former wife of a lead singer of a band, and the reason that they broke up was because that singer of the band wanted to tour in 2001 more than the wife did or something like that, I'm going to get that story pulled out of that wife. Does that ever cause problems? I could imagine you're going to see the ex-wife of the singer and then the singer's like, yo, what are you doing talking to her? I mean, mostly the only problems I run into are with managers because managers of bands always want to know what their bottom line is. So not the personal stories. You know, if, if by the time I have found them, it's usually by referral. If there's a personal connection to me talking to a personal member of a band or a friend of the band or something like that, you know, there's an implied trust or a pathos that's already been established there. So they don't feel as if there's like a weird, well, what's this person going digging into our business? It's not like that. It's just, again, me explaining to them who the end user is going to be here. If it serves the narrative of making this album feel relevant in 2022, 
I'm going to look for it and I'm going to omit the rest of the details, all the superfluous gossipy stuff. That's not what I'm here to do. You know what I mean? But if it creates a better experience for the fans reading that retrospective essay, I think that's ultimately where the best stuff comes out of. That's excellent. Yeah. So it's uh, it's referrals. It's not like you're just showing up on the doorstep like, hey, tell me about your ex-wife or ex-wife, tell me about the singer. No, it's just there's no cold calling anymore in this. At this point, it's it's I've heard about you. I know what you're up to. And we think it's great. And the people who don't think it's great or don't want their story to be told that way or they want to control essentially the narrative that's fine. I don't have to work with you. There's a million other projects I could do in my very limited spare time. You know what I mean? <laughs> there's a lot of examples where, for example, uh, for instance, there's a roaring community or a fan enthusiasm towards putting out an album on vinyl for the very first time, right? But you're met with the band essentially not existent at all. They don't have any social media presence. They have no interaction with their fan community at all. If that's not a lever that the label can access or I can access, uh, it really limits the audience and the buying audience to those people who are just, you know, singing the praises of an album from 2004. That's not really enough anymore. It's when everybody comes together and quote collabs, you know what I mean? To make something happen that I find the most interesting content comes out of, the most interesting packaging comes out of, when those band members feel like they were a major part of the process artistically, it's rewarding to them. It's rewarding to them to look at their album artwork with new eyes. Juliana Theory, Emotion is Dead is a good example of that. Having conversations, pointed conversations with Brett Dieter and Josh Fielder from that band about the artwork and the way that it was created back in 2000 led to a reimagining of the artwork that felt with the vinyl release exactly the same feeling you would get looking at that CD, but we fixed the things that were wrong with the artwork. The lady on the front cover, for instance, was translucent for no reason at all. You could see wires like telephone wires behind her skin. It made no sense at all. So when we put out the vinyl reissue, we colored in her palette so that there's no wires going through her body. It's it's not really serving a narrative juxtaposition to the original artwork. It's just making it better and smarter, you know? That's good. Yeah, and it's like a second chance to fix everything. You get to actually do that and and improve things. That's the hope, yeah. And so Zayo is another good example where a band really didn't like the artwork for a record that they put out in 1999, Liberate Te Ex It's a Latin for save yourself from hell. Are you familiar with this record at all? Oh yeah, this is like a this is like a landmark record for Zayo and in my history. Great, you just just and I'm to, I'm saying like from a fan angle, I just it's great. Tell me about your fan experience with Liberate, please. Now this record, uh, I got into hardcore around '98. That was my entry point. Zayo was a very prominent band in the scene at the time. I was familiar with the first record, Splinter Shards, uh, but I really loved. Where Blood and Fire Bring Rest, as many did back then. And I was super into that album. I had seen the band and loved them. We had the Training for Utopia Zayo split where we got a taste of of the new Zayo coming. And everyone was just chomping at the bit, waiting for Liberate to come out. And it was a very, very highly anticipated record. And it delivered. It was fantastic. And I loved everything about it. And I, I know uh, 
some people made fun of the layout, I guess, because the band, I think someone was wearing eyeliner or whatever that was going on in the layout, but I liked everything about it. I loved it. Yes. Similar experience to you had almost identical as a fan experience. And I worked on Splinter Shards with Dave Rankin, who co- who painted the original cover to, to Splinter Shards. And then the band brought him back to paint the Wear Blood and Fire uh, album artwork with the guy on fire on the front cover, right? You're familiar? Oh, yes. So Dave Rankin is just a little commuter school teacher of high school students painting in his classroom every day in Philadelphia, still to this day. That's what he does. And my mission was to find Dave to get those paintings essentially restored for the purposes of a vinyl reissue. So getting to know Dave and having him go in and restore some of this artwork, he also did Further Seems Forever, How to Start a Fire, among others, some some really interesting titles uh, that his visual aesthetic is so unique and his talent is enormous. And he's just sort of one of those hidden characters in the scene that we don't really talk about by name. We might recognize his iconography from his artwork that he's painted, you know, but nobody's putting him in the Smithsonian of hardcore legends of painting, even though they should. Yeah, that uh, cover image for Where Blood and Fire Bring Rest should be in the Smithsonian. As far as I'm concerned, that's iconic. So you have the third record, which sonically is almost like a, a darker, deeper, twisted cousin of Blood and Fire. Blood and Fire almost sounds like a pop record compared to Liberate, in my opinion. And when talking to the band about layouts, they had mentioned to me never loving how Liberate's artwork had turned out in the original release with Jesse's eye and the eyeliner. I think they had some things about it that they appreciated the seven circles of hell, for example, you know, the, yeah, I thought that whole thing was really cool. That part worked, but the cover itself was very uh, unappealing to them. They, They didn't really get it. And it was too late and already at the presses by the time it had come out. So this is where the unoriginal vinyl story and the relationships and the, the fan experience starts to be really, really rewarding for me. And talking to Dave, I said, you know, if there's a narrative here, and this is a trilogy of artwork visually, what's the narrative? And he goes, well, I would say that the first record is the birth when you have this splintering essentially of, uh, uh, you know, a a woman's anatomy to have a baby. And there's a little ghoulish baby kind of creature on the front. And then the second album is uh, a death where there's a guy who's basically at the very end of his life cycle immolating on the front cover. And then there's other examples of death. I said, so what if 20 years after the fact that person finds a way to escape hell? What if he's been in hell for 20 years and that same character escapes from hell somehow, you know what I mean? The, the paradise lost story, if you were, and it's been in hell and what does hell look like? And we start talking through some crazy ideas and I come up with this narrative where essentially you know, the snake on the back of where blood and fire, who is eating the man, that snake has been digesting the man slowly over 20 years. And then the person essentially gets free from its addiction, the hell that it's living in. And it's like a newfound angel and it busts out of the snake. It unhinges the snake's jaws and it releases itself and becomes free from hell and blasts a bunch of demons like, uh, like Gandalf or whatever, you know? <laughs> I love it. Wow. You, you get to create like a whole story around this. It sounds so cool. So we released the record 
with the new artwork. And uh, it's a mixed bag. There are people who are just wanting the nostalgia of seeing the original eyeball. And then there are people who I think more often than not, including all of the members of the band, really love putting those three records next to each other on their wall, telling a story about those three records now, instead of it just being an album that came out in 1999 with weird eyeball artwork and a mascara person. Now it's relevant in 2022. There's this whole beautiful restored artwork, including a brand new painting for the first time working with Dave Rankin in almost 20 years. The band gets to go celebrate his work and see the time lapse of him painting the whole thing over a long period of time, like all of this stuff. You know what I mean? For me, that's more of what I mean by saying I'm deaf. A label doesn't do that. You know what I mean? No. And an artist doesn't necessarily have the know-how to do that. So putting myself on the Z-axis and thinking about the end user, which is the fan, I would say, I want to own that thing. I want to see new Dave Rankin artwork associated with Zayo in the worst kind of way. What do I got to do to make that happen? (laughs) You know what I mean? Well, that really tells the story of what you're doing very well. This example you've given here, I love that. So you're not like a middleman. You ever see the movie? Um, you ever see the movie Michael Clayton? I mean, it's been a minute with George Clooney. Yeah, not since 2001, maybe. He's just like the guy that gets things done, no matter what. He knows who to talk to. He knows. He just knows how to do it. That's like you. Yeah, I'd say that that's probably a fair assessment. The, there's another piece in that though, where I think if you were to look at me or you looked at my LinkedIn or something like that, and because I don't have social media, I have other people running the social media for me. You would think there's no way in the world that guy is into getting in the pit hardcore. You know what I mean? And there's a there's a a subtlety to that that I love, like Matt Damon's character in Ocean's Eleven, where he's playing the Nevada gaming commissioner. Like he's got the clutch job of everybody in that movie, way more than anybody else. You know what I mean? And that whole idea of be specific but not memorable, be funny, but don't make him laugh. He's gotta like you and then forget you the moment he's left you've left his side. That's the like coaching strategy that Brad uh, Pitt gives him in it. That's my training. Like that's, I can just be in and out of people's consciousness for a very short amount of time and be like, I don't know what happened, but I kind of like that that just happened. That was really fun. That was kind of unique. That's a unique dude over there. I like him, but who was he again? What's the story? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and <laughs> I'm already on to the next thing, doing more creating with somebody else. So that's where I where I find a lot of joy. And I have to kind of find joy in that because I do it all over the country so often. I'm traveling a lot to do things like this with complete strangers, creating little like memories and moments for myself to tell my family or my daughter or creating moments for them to be like, yo, the weirdest guy came in today. He could talk, but I don't know. That was, I think it was cool. I think it was fun. You know, That's excellent. So where do you live? I'm in Denver, about South, South Denver in the suburbs. Yeah. So I grew up in oh, nice. Colorado, but I also grew up down in the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas. I've been to Denver a couple of times for work, you know, in Denver or just outside. And the thing I always tell people is like, the sky is unlike anything I've ever seen out there. You just, it just looks completely incredible. Yeah. And you're in Brooklyn, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is very different. I mean, I go running in the mornings and I can see 80 miles in all directions between two 14ers on the front range, you know, uh, I live at 6,000 feet elevation. So yeah, the air is thinner up here. And I think Colorado's vibe is very informal and very unpretentious. There's no pretension to people from Colorado at all. We're pretty laid back folk. And, uh, 
have a lot of fun and have our own unique quirky interests that to maybe the rest of the world of either the scene or social media or whatever would, would just seem to not fit in necessarily with that. What, what's really popular, but we're all very proud to just sort of wear our interests on our hat. You know what I mean? This is just who we are, what we like. And it's, it's cool. I think it goes back to fiercely independent gold mining, rugged, sort of DNA that exists out here. These people all sort of come here for their own reasons and do their own thing. Awesome. Well, we're out of time. That's it. So Jason, I just want to say thanks. It was great hearing about Unoriginal Vinyl. And I mean, you have some great stories. It sounds like you're doing awesome work. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you so much, Keith. Appreciate the time and please continue to make these new scene episodes because you're doing the Lord's work here as well. Hey, I'm not going anywhere. This is it. And uh, everybody... Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the chat with Toby. We hope you enjoyed the chat with Jason. I'm back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time. Yeah!